Give praise to the Lord in this manner. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Israel, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan, as the portion you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to suppress them. For their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing. Let them sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Cry out, save us, God our Saviour. Gather us and deliver us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen. And praise the Lord. Cheers, mate. Good evening. Great to see you all. I, um, when we were planning this series, Andrew was talking about a thread through the, the weeks that we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. And I didn't expect one of the threads to be what type of coffee we were going to be drinking on stage. But Andrew laid down the gauntlet last week and challenged me to one-up him. He had an Americano. And I'll let you decide who's weird here, because on reflection, I was like, actually, do you want a hot drink up on stage? Is it me that's weird? Is it Andrew that's weird? 
I'll let you all decide, but I think it's probably Andrew. Anyway, I've gone for a nice latte, so let's put that one to bed. And Sarah, I'll lay down the gauntlet for you for next week, see if you can one-up that. Okay, before we get going, I want you to just chat to the person next to you, and I want you to answer a question. I want you to answer the question, would you rather have the power of flight or the power of teleportation? So I want you to argue with the person next to you, justify your answer, you've got about a minute, go. Flight or teleportation? Okay, bring your arguments to a close. Thank you for indulging. Just out of interest, I'm going to ask you to put your hands up. Who voted for flying? Interesting, who voted for teleportation? So way more for teleportation. I actually think that that question reveals something about human psyche, but that's probably for another message. The only reason I really asked that question is because I'm going to start off talking about heroes. Heroes are everywhere, aren't they? If you think about the popularity of things like Marvel and DC at the moment, you think how wildly popular heroes are. We've probably all had those times where we've thought, I wish I was a superhero with superpowers. We see heroes in pop culture as well, whether it's celebrities that we look up to or sports stars. Last weekend, I got to take my brother to the Manchester City Stadium tour, much to my own annoyance as a United fan. And he looks up to those players like they're his heroes. He got to sit in the seats that they sat in in the changing room. He got to see a glimpse behind the curtain of what life looks like for his heroes. When it comes to biblical heroes, I think there's probably people that spring to mind for all of us in the room that we think of as heroes of the faith. One of those for many of us here is certain to be King David, a hero of the faith. And we're going to be talking a little bit about him this evening as we continue our series on worship. We're going to be looking at what David teaches us for our personal worship life and how that then translates into our together worship life. But before we get into that, let's just recap on what Andrew shared last week. If you weren't here, I really do encourage you to go and listen to the podcast because it was an incredible message. We're looking at a series, as I mentioned, on worship as we consider what that means for us at Fullwood in the context of the celebrate aspect of our creed vision. One of the most powerful parts for me of Andrew's message last week was thinking about the idea that worship is one of the only things that goes into eternity unchanged. Andrew showed us that worship is not just one thing, it's not just a song sung on a Sunday, but rather it's a lifestyle. In fact, more than that, it's a very purpose that we exist for. I found this quote from a theologian called Howard Thurman that sums it up perfectly for me. Worship is one of the trunk line ideas of existence, as central to who we are as human beings as the trunk is central to the tree. Andrew asked us, how much do we value Jesus? And the answer to that question lies in how we'll worship. If we value him and put him above everything else in our life, then we'll have powerful worship lives. This evening, I'm going to be picking up on that theme and looking at how that plays out for us one-to-one with God and how that then translates into how we worship together. Okay, so who is King David? He's one of the most well-known figures in the Bible. He was king of Israel. And God said of him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Andrew mentioned this last week, but I don't think it can be overstated what an incredible description of someone that is. What would we have to do in our own lives to be described as men and women after God's own heart? 
David walked with God and God promised that from his descendants, he would bring a king that would rule forever. And that king was Jesus. David was passionate, he was spirit-filled, he was authentic, he was honest, he was inspiring. He killed a lion, he killed a bear, he killed Goliath as a young man with only a stone and a catapult. He was one of the most successful commanders that Israel had ever seen. During his time as king, Israel thrived, and by the end of his time as king, most of their enemies were at least temporarily put to an end. He was a mighty, mighty man of God. I don't know about you, but it's no surprise that many of us view David as a hero of the faith. But the really interesting thing for me is that when I first think of King David, I don't think of all that strength and power and might and all of his achievements as king. I think of him as being someone who was committed to worshiping God, personally worshiping God and worshiping God with others. In fact, being fully honest, as I was preparing this message, I'd kind of forgotten that David that wrote the Psalms was the same David that killed Goliath. We get taught that story in Sunday school. I'd kind of forgotten that they were the same person because I just think of King David as being so much the epitome of personal worship. Yes, David wasn't perfect, and we will come on to that, but he was a man after God's heart, and he was committed to the purpose of worshiping his creator. The reading that Jason read for us was quite long, but I thought it was important to show a little glimpse into how David worshipped. He said things like, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, seek his face always, remember the wonders he has done, sing to the Lord all the earth, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Here's a guy that is totally lost in his reverence for God. What a lesson that is for us here this evening. But it's also a challenge for us because sometimes when we look up at our heroes, we think, I can't be like them. They're our heroes. They're above me. They're on a pedestal. I can't be like them. When I first became a Christian, I read passages in the Bible where these heroes of the faith made mistakes or committed sins. And I thought, I must be misunderstanding something. God couldn't put these guys in the Bible when they're committing sins. I was trying to argue for a reason why it wasn't their fault. When we look at our Modern heroes, we think the same thing. My brother can probably not comprehend that any of the Manchester City players would ever do anything wrong. When I watch a film, I love the main character. I think he's a hero. I come to know him and love him. And then he does something inexplicably wrong. And all of a sudden, I start to question myself. Should I love that character as much? Why would somebody who I look up to do something that I disagree with? But the truth is, it's in David's brokenness that God can teach us something. Firstly, that it's not about the man or the woman, but it's about God. When David committed his most egregious sin, which was to commit adultery with Bathsheba, he did get down on his knees and repent. But it wasn't David that gave himself mercy. It wasn't David that redeemed himself. It was God. It wasn't about David. It was about God. And secondly, the brokenness shows us that even our heroes aren't infallible. Even our heroes have flaws. And what that helps us to understand is that you and I can strive to achieve the same things that our heroes do. They're not on a pedestal above us. God's saying that we can strive to achieve the same things that they do. Okay, so let's look at what David's worship actually looked like, and then we can learn to follow that example that he's given us. I think the best way to do that is to jump into some of the Psalms. When David prayed, most often he would enter God's presence with praise and thanksgiving. And then he would move into requests to the Lord. And his requests were often big and brash. They weren't dainty, please. 
He prayed three times a day, evening, morning, and night, it says. He worshipped seven times a day, one of the Psalms tells us. He prayed in all situations, in times of joy, in times of sorrow, during times when he was living a holy life, and times when sin had its grip on him. He prayed honest, daring prayers that acknowledged the true power and presence of God. And he didn't take it for granted. He didn't take approaching God's throne lightly. Psalm 15 says, Who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who talks with integrity and works with righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. David acknowledged the immense privilege it was to worship God. And I wonder if we sometimes take that for granted. I know that I personally do. When we reflect and think about what Jesus has done for us and he's made the Father accessible to us in a way that he wasn't accessible in the Old Testament. And sometimes that maybe means that we take it for granted. Do we realize how privileged we are to be in this room this evening, able to worship God together? It's an immense privilege and something that we should never take lightly. Let's take a look at some more of the Psalms to gain a glimpse into a life that, that David had with his worship. So we're going to go through five things that David shows us. Psalm 18 shows us that David was a grateful worshiper. It says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. David here is praising God as he delivered him from the hands of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. David teaches us that when God does something, we should be grateful to him. We should go over and above to praise him. It's so easy to move on when God does a miracle. How many times has that happened in our lives when God has done something amazing and then the next circumstance comes and we just move on? We don't take time. We don't take time to stop and be grateful and to praise him. We've got home lives or jobs or kids and we forget to take those moments. David shows us we should all be grateful worshippers. David was also a committed worshipper. Psalm 63 shows us this, that even in the face of danger, distress, and peril, David would worship. He'd fled to the desert of Judah as Saul was pursuing him to kill him. And even there he said, you God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. Even in the face of starvation and thirst, David chose to worship. He desired and longed after God more than he desired and longed after water. He knew that God was the one that would provide the living water that he needed to truly live. Paul teaches us something similar about being committed. In Philippians 3, 7 to 8, it says, whatever, I had gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Worship was so key to Paul that it went beyond everything else in his life. He was truly abandoned to a life of worship. How often in our lives do we want to stop worshiping? Like I say, when the next circumstance comes along, when the next challenge comes along, there's been times for me this week when I've thought about packing in this message because things have been hard. And God just said to me, no, you've got to be committed to worship 
even when things are difficult. And anyone in this room that's really been in the presence of the Most High God knows that it is the best thing. We just had an amazing time of worship where I think you can agree that God was in this room. And that feeling of the power and the presence of God is the best thing and it calls us to be committed so that no matter what our circumstances are, we're worshiping. We can choose to praise him. We can choose to enter his presence. David shows us that he was a repenting worshiper. He wasn't perfect. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He allowed a man to be killed so that he could do so. He was willing to be corrected though and he was willing to get down on his knees and repent. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's easy for for us to look and think that David did something that was far beyond anything that anyone in this room would ever do. He He allowed a man to be killed so that he could sleep with his wife. But we know that none of us are perfect and sinless. The famous verse in Romans tells us that there's no one righteous, not even one. Is there anything going on in your life at the moment that God's prompting you tonight to say, get down on your knees and repent? Maybe it's one too many jealous thoughts or you're watching something that you know you shouldn't be watching. Maybe you're gossiping a little bit too much or being greedy or dishonoring others. Don't be discouraged. Yes, acknowledge your transgressions, but do so before God and seek his repentance because he is gracious and merciful. Get down on your knees and seek him tonight. David was also an honest worshiper. Actually, sometimes when I read the Psalms, I'm blown away by how honest he actually is. I think you can't say that to God. He's so honest. He says, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? David wasn't afraid to get real with God. He wasn't afraid to voice his questions or his doubts. He cried out in anguish to God. But the point is he cried out to God. And what happened so often when he did so was that he ended up praising by the end. In the very next paragraph, it says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Talk about a roller coaster ride. He's asking all these deep questions. He's saying that God's forgotten him. And then the next minute, he's praising him. What's going on there? Well, it's the fact that when David recognized that he had questions, when he had doubts, he got into God's presence. And when you get into God's presence, what can you do but praise? Once you're in God's presence, you know that all you can do is praise. He was dragged into praise as he was honest with God. What is it that you want to ask God tonight? Is there something that you're maybe angry with him over? Are there questions that you've got or doubts that you've got about him? Verbalizing it helps you to process it, but it also helps you to just get into his presence. And I guarantee that you'll be dragged into praise in his name. Finally, David was an abandoned worshiper, by which I mean he worshiped with abandon, with disregard for what people thought. He was so wrapped up in reverence for God that all he cared about was his relationship with him. This meant that he sang, he danced, he threw his arms up, he got down on his knees, and he didn't care who was looking. If we're going to develop truly intimate and powerful experiences of God within our personal worship lives, we've got to worship 
with abandon. In many ways, worshiping with abandon when we're by ourselves feels weirder than doing it in front of people. Are you stopping yourself from going that extra place in worship because you're worried about looking silly when you and God are the only ones that are watching? The challenge this week is to take that abandon into your one-to-one time with God and just see what happens. So David teaches us that in personal worship, we should be grateful, we should be committed, we should be repenting, we should be honest worshippers, and we should be abandoned worshippers. If we do that, we'll see our relationship with God get supercharged. The beautiful thing for us is that David is a fallen hero, but we've got an example of a perfect hero that we can model our lives on as well, and that example is Jesus. Jesus often went off to pray, to seek God, recognizing the need to pause and take the time to be with God. And we're going to do something a little bit different tonight. We're going to take that time to pause and be with God right now in the middle of the message. Well, probably two-thirds, three. We're going to take communion together. And during this communion, we're going to have that time to pause, to listen to God, and to ask him the questions that are on our minds this evening. Taking communion is a huge privilege and it's a time that we can set aside to worship and remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. During a Passover meal, Jesus took the bread and said to his disciples, take and eat, this is my body. As we do that today, we remember that Jesus' body was broken on the cross as he hung there to die for our sins. He died so that we could enter God's presence and worship in the way that, God, that David teaches us to. After breaking the bread, Jesus took the cup and said, this is my blood. As we drink the wine this evening, we remember Jesus' blood was shed for us so that we could be made whole, so that we could be redeemed, and so that we could have eternal life. So the stewards are just gonna come forward. They're gonna bring out the communion to you. You're gonna take it in your seats. We're gonna play a song, and you can listen to those words. But as we're taking this communion, take the time to stop, to pause, to experience God's presence. Is he asking you to be more grateful for the things that you've got? Is he asking you to be more committed, worshiping in the face of your circumstances? Is God asking you tonight to be repenting for some sin that's got a grip on you? Is he asking you to get honest with him, to scream out and shout and be drawn into his presence? Or is he asking you to worship with abandon, to get totally lost in reverence? So let's take this time to pause and think on all of those questions. The stewards are going to come forward and serve you. What a privilege it is to be able to spend time with God one-on-one. But also what a privilege it is to be able to worship God together as well. Really, worshiping together is inseparable from worshiping one-to-one. Without personal worship, there is no together worship. There's power in worshiping together, and David recognized that too. Yes, he got on his knees and worshiped with abandon when it was just him and God, but he also created spaces for people to come together and worship and be filled with joy and adoration. Our personal worship life must lead us to worship together Because there's so much to gain from being in the presence of others, all worshipping the same God. There's a great line in a song that I love that says, In a crowd of 10,000, 
you don't miss a thing. And I think it's a beautiful image of what it means to worship God together. In a crowd of 10,000, God doesn't miss anything. It's something that became real for me when we went to Hillsong Conference a few years ago. And there was 10,000 people in the O2 worshiping and praising God. And the amazing thing is, is that those 10,000 people are all having that one-to-one experience of God. Somehow, God maintains a one-to-one experience with those 10,000 at the same time as all of those 10,000 voices coming together and worshiping God as one. It's truly mind-boggling. Those times of worship are some of the most special and precious that I've ever had in my life. And one night, I remember that we were praying I was praying and that line was running through my head in a crowd of 10,000, you don't miss a thing. And God gave me a vision and it's something that I felt like I should share tonight. That vision was of a beating heart and I realized that the heart was mine. And then from above came pure gold being poured onto the heart and coating it. And then the picture zoomed out and I saw that it was my body and the gold flowed out over the heart and over my body. The picture zoomed out again and I saw the people of this church with that same gold flowing out over their hearts and their bodies. The picture zoomed out again and it was flowing out over our bodies and then over the church, over the surrounding area, the city, the county, the UK. And eventually it flowed out over the entire world. God was saying to me that he didn't miss a thing and the worship of one could become the worship of many. The purifying of one heart could lead to the purifying of many. If we keep our personal worship to ourselves, that's what we're missing out on. David knew this, and there's a really interesting story that demonstrates for us why worshiping together is so important. The passage just prior to the one that was read for us earlier gives a glimpse of what David did. It says, they brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to each Israelite man man and woman. So previously, the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence, God's manifest presence, was located in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, which is the tent-like structure where people worship God in Gibeon. The holy place and the holy of holies are in the center of the tabernacle, and Andrew touched on this a little bit last week. And the holy of holies is the place where God's presence dwelt most powerfully, and the ark was placed inside there. After David had secured Israel against the Philistines, he was determined to bring the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem, but he left the tabernacle the altars, and all the other furnishings at the place in Gibeon. The ark was a key part of worship in the tabernacle, and separating it from the rest of the things there was a bit curious. What was David doing? What was going on? Well, Psalm 78 teaches us that God first had allowed the ark to be captured by the Philistines as a sign of judgment, and then he rejected the tents of Joseph, which was the tabernacle of Moses, which was the one in Gibeon. But instead, he chose the tribe of Judah, which David was a part of. And he chose Mount Zion to be its resting place. This is so interesting for me because it's pointing at the restoration that was to come. 
Who else is from the tribe of Judah? Jesus. God had said that he was going to restore the world through David's line, the tribe of Judah. God chose to restore the world through that line. He chose Mount Zion and Jerusalem as the place in which his presence would dwell. And he built a sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever there. Remember last week when Andrew was talking about the worship in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem? Well, right here, with King David bringing the ark to Mount Zion, God was hinting at that eternal future. Not only that, but David placed the ark out in the open where everybody could see it. Previously, it was hidden behind the veil in the tabernacle and only the priests were allowed to enter the Holy of Holies and see the ark. But David placed it out in the open. It wasn't closed off. It wasn't only accessible for the few, but for the many. David brought with it a new style of worship that was joy-filled and praise-filled, quite a contrast to the more solemn and sacrificial worship that came before. David changed the way people worship and ushered in a new understanding of what it meant. And way later in Acts chapter 15, James is speaking to the assembly and he quotes a passage from Amos which says, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. It's ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. Why did God need to rebuild David's fallen tent? Well, David had actually wanted to build God a temple. He said that God shouldn't be in a meager tent, he should be in a splendorous temple. But God had told David through the prophet Nathan that he shouldn't, but that in the future he would rebuild his tabernacle. And that's what this verse is talking about. Why is God promising to rebuild David's tabernacle? Why not Moses's, which is the one that we're more familiar with? In fact, I was saying to Andrew before, I didn't even really realize that there was a different tabernacle. Why not rebuild Solomon's temple, which came after David, which was super splendorous. It was glorious and gorgeous. As we've just seen, the reason why God said that he was going to rebuild David's tabernacle is because that it was visible for all to see. It was placed in a way that it wasn't hidden behind a veil. It wasn't off limits. And James in Acts is using that to show the assembly that the worship of God is not off limits to anyone. It's not off limits to the Gentiles, which were the non-Jews, and it's not off limits to us. God promised to rebuild David's tabernacle so the Gentiles could enter and seek the Lord. God promised to rebuild David's tabernacle so that you and I can worship here this evening. God promised to rebuild David's tabernacle because it facilitated together worship, not just personal worship. We can worship here and now together because when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the promise and God rebuilt David's tabernacle. How amazing is that? We often think about Jesus' sacrifice and thank him for it and we frame it almost exclusively as redeeming us from our sin and our shame, and that is so vitally important to grasp. But what about the fact that his legacy on the cross also permits us to worship? Because he died, we're able to spend our days worshiping God. 
God's desire is to restore the same spirit of worship that typified David's tabernacle, a worship that could be heard 24-7, a worship that involved many people, many instruments and styles, a worship that draws out a new song from his people and glorifies him. The shift in style from Moses to David is a sign of worship as it is in heaven. It's a glimpse and a taste of heaven on earth. And in that new heaven and new earth, our worship is going to be of every people, of every tribe, of every nation. It's going to be worship that's defined by being together. So what does that mean for us now? Well, it means that we should be re-inspired. We should be reinvigorated to worship together. We should be excited and expectant that we get to be together in this place, worshiping God. Worshiping Jesus together may be one of the most important things that we do, in fact. It plays such a key role in rekindling our spiritual fire and keeping it burning. Worshiping together brings awakening. It helps spiritual fog to be removed. It brings assurance. We get encouraged when we see others worshiping around us. I love how one blog put it. Worshiping together is about God's people standing, kneeling, bowing, and lying prostrate together in heartfelt agreement about the greatness and holiness of God. How awesome is that? Worshiping together is all about unity. It's about recognizing that we're part of a story that goes beyond ourselves, whilst also having a big part to play in that story. That's what Creed is going to do for this church. We get to play a part in a story that's bigger than we are, and that starts off by celebrating God. The personal worship that David demonstrates to us gives us a chance to know that we personally get to play a part in this story. It gives us a time to be refreshed. It gives us a time to talk one-to-one with God and for him to equip us and empower us for the thing that he wants us to do on this earth. The together worship then applies that and helps us to see that this work that God is doing isn't just about us. It's about everyone. It's about transforming the lives of many people for his glory. So of course, I'm not gonna take much more time because I think we should just be worshiping God together. And in fact, the band can join me up on the stage. It's key that as we worship together, we recognize that fundamentally worship is an experience of the heart and it's not a means to anything else. It's not something that can be forced or faked. It's not something that we should do to impress others or even to impress God. It's something that we should do as an overflow of our relationship with God, whether it's an overflow of praise and adoration because of his goodness and mercy, or an overflow of questions and doubts that drag us into his presence. Whatever you've got going on in your life tonight, worshiping God in spirit and truth is the only thing that's going to satisfy you. Whatever you've got going on, it's the only thing that's going to satisfy you. Giving it your all in worship to God can and will make a difference to your circumstances. It will make an impact on your life. There's a phrase in sports that goes, leave it all on the field. The idea being that you don't want to do anything other than your all. There's actually a famous arm wrestler called Devin Larratt that epitomizes this. He says that if he loses an arm wrestling match, he's annoyed at himself if he's not injured because he doesn't want to leave anything on the field. Ask yourself now, when you meet your maker, when you meet God and you're face to face with him, 
Do you want to have left anything on the field? Or do you want to give your all in worship whenever you have the chance? We're going to spend an eternity doing it and enjoying it, so why not make the most of it now too? What if tonight we could reverberate God's name amongst the people here, so much so that in 30 years it'll be remembered? What if people in 1, 5, 10, 15 years come to know God because of a move of the Spirit that starts in the praise of His people tonight? How would you worship God if that was going to come about? How would you worship with true abandon? God sees you in the crowd and He's inviting you to give it your all. Let's worship.